I think that we can look at teachers that we know and say, one of the things that made them a great teacher is that they really were always learning. They were studying. They had something new and exciting to share. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Director of Marketing. Our goal here is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. So we've been having a conversation, Andrew, about the seven things that you have learned, although somewhat imperfectly, over the last 30 years of teaching. And we've only gotten through four, and we've recorded two episodes. So here we are, episode three, trying to get three more in. I'm a little concerned, but I just wonder how on earth you're able to get through all this content in one hour when we haven't been able to get through it. Well, I don't have you commenting and prompting me to go down rabbit trails. Well, this is true. But I also like to think that I'm sitting in the seat of the listener. And if they were in this room having a conversation with you, they'd offer their comments and maybe ask some questions. So I guess that's okay, right? Well, hey, we don't have a limit on number of episodes. <laughs> no. I mean, it's not like our season will end after whatever. <laughs> that That's my line. You keep thinking we're running out of content, and I'm quite sure that we don't have enough. No, I mean, we could we could just start talking about these posters on the wall in the <laughs> office and probably do a whole podcast on the Demotivator series. This sounds like a Unit 7 getting ready to happen. <laughs> <laughs> probably. Okay, so can you just do a quick recap on what we've talked about the first four lessons? Sure. We did the first four lessons I've learned from 30 years of teaching. First one was it's hard not to do to our students, to our children, what was done to us, mm-hmm. that we're shaped and formed by our own education And the tendency is to just do it that way to them without being able to stop and say, was that the best thing? Is is this now the best thing? Right. And I mentioned John Taylor Gatto, the importance of his books, Dumbing Us Down and Underground History, and still recommend those. Break that mold. Second point was process. Process over product. We are very product obsessed. We want the the final grade, the number on the transcript, all that stuff that proves, essentially, we learned something. The badges in the video game. Whereas... (laughs) (laughs) Or in the app. Whereas, you know, the experience day-to-day is where the real learning happens. And I mentioned the movie A River Runs Through It, that Mm. scene where the little boy is writing papers third time, and then at the end his father says, you know, now throw it away. Uh, What's he teaching his son? This isn't a product. This isn't the end. You learned something today. Go fish now. And we'll come back tomorrow and learn some more. Mm -hmm. The third point was that uh, all kids are different. Mm -hmm. And the problem when we get trapped into this idea of comparing kids with each other, particularly based on age, whereas we're all neurologically different, children are all neurologically different. So how do you teach many children who are all different in a way that's most appropriate for them, especially given the fact they need different variables, different repetition, they have different interests, they have 
different personalities, all that. And then the fourth point that we got to was the problem of progressive education not being about progress, but being about let's try a new idea and another new idea and the fact that this really hasn't been working for close to five decades, at least in the teaching of writing, Mm -hmm. and seems to be even getting worse faster in Mm -hmm. the last decade. Mm -hmm. And why not look at what used to work when people had a high level of basic skills? You know, people in the 1800s, they could read the Federalist Papers and discuss them. Your average farmer, the letters from Civil War soldiers, you know, a level of literary eloquence that probably few of us could achieve, if any, the ability to do complex math with no technology, a lot of it in their head. Right. And uh, I mentioned the eighth grade graduation examination from Salina, Kansas, in, and how none of us could pass that test. We don't have those basic skills. Right. And we could, but to do so, we would have to let go of some of our progressive ideas and go back to what used to work. Right. Which would be common sense, but as Chesterton said, common sense is most uncommon. When when you mention math and the way we used to learn math, I think of that movie, Hidden Figures. Oh, yes. Where the computers were actually people, people doing computing. Yes. And then they got a big IBM and then they had to use the human being to check that the answer the IBM gave them was correct. Exactly. And yeah, tremendous movie. Highly recommended. I enjoyed it. Probably one of the best movies of the year. Mm-hmm. And it does show the capacity for a human to reach a fullness of ability in that area of math. And of course, we can see that also in in the writing area. And we should make a movie about <laughs> hidden poets or hidden something. Hidden poets. <laughs> hidden composers. Compositioners. Well, so lesson number five. Lesson number five. This one I have termed college and career readiness isn't. Oh, isn't what? Isn't what <laughs> college, and college and career readiness is purported to be. Hmm. This has got recently a lot of traffic. These are these are buzzwords now. Mm-hmm. Candidates use them, college and career readiness. It, the new fascinating document, you might read this in case you're suffering from insomnia <laughs> or something, test specifications for the redesigned SAT, oh. registered trademark. <laughs> it's riddled with this terminology, college mm. and career readiness. But I have gone out and polled groups of people, dozens, hundreds, even a room with a thousand people, and said, shout out and tell me if you had to teach as a college teacher, a high school graduate, or if you had to employ as an employer, a high school graduate, what would you want? Mm -hmm. What would be the things you would hope for in this person that is your student or your employee or coworker? What would you think people shout out when they say, what would you like to see in people that come to you, high school graduates? Well, read well, write well, think well. Yeah. Probably, though, honest, true. Integrity, that's Mm -hmm. a common one. Uh, Showing up to work on time. Punctuality. Yep. Diligence, perseverance. Absolutely. Cheerfulness. Oh, yes. (laughs) Interesting that people would say that, you know, but, but we know in our office how valuable it is to have cheerful, happy (laughs) people who enjoy Mm -hmm. the environment and the work and and life. Another one that comes up frequently is humility. Yes. Teachability. Teachability. Mm -hmm. There's such an entitlement attitude so many kids have. It's like, well, you know, 
I deserve a big salary and I deserve, mm-hmm. you know, whatever I want mm-hmm. because that's kind of the the way they've the, they've been enculturated to this mm-hmm. entitlement mm-hmm. mentality. And it just doesn't work. I'm entitled to a good grade because I'm here. And <laughs> yeah. even if I didn't write a good paper or pass the test or even show up. Right. Those really are intangible types of things. So you talk about integrity, punctuality, teachability, cheerfulness, enthusiasm. Well, one thing I was thinking of is social intelligence. Because we value our customers so much, we want to be sure that the people that we're hiring has the smarts to be able to speak to a customer in a respectful and kind way. Mm -hmm. Sure, yeah. Those are pretty much all things that cannot be Mm. put into a textbook (laughs) and or tested by an SAT test. Sure. And so we have this kind of focus on here's what we define as college and career readiness and then they put that into standards and then they design tests on those standards and then they design textbooks on those tests and it's not right it's just not in fact honestly give me a humble teachable basically intelligent person who can speak well write well and think well who didn't go to college, mm-hmm. and I'd rather have that person working with me right. in many ways. Yes. Know? Of course, if you're called to be an engineer or a doctor, you've got to go jump through hoops. Mm-hmm. But the idea somehow that high school gets you ready for the real world doesn't seem to be working too mm. well, at least what I've heard. So what does work well? How do you, how do you cultivate that type of thing? Well, you know, one thing in, in the classical education world we talk about is wisdom and virtue as being these objectives of education. So what if a school said our goal is to cultivate wisdom and virtue rather than our goal is to get kids with high SAT scores? Right. You probably would end up with kids who get above average SAT scores. Mm, Right. But you wouldn't necessarily get kids with wisdom and virtue because your goal was high SAT scores. Do you see? Oh, So one is maybe a side product of another but they're not functions of each other in that way. So what is wisdom? That's a question. What is wisdom? I guess if you looked at kind of an ancient or biblical idea, you'd say, well, it's right judgment. It's being able to judge the person you're communicating with and Mm -hmm. say, what's the compassionate, appropriate way Mm -hmm. to interact with this person or to be able to make a decision, should we do this or not, or Mm -hmm. should we do this or that? And, of course, kind of the mantra of young people today is... Do whatever you want. Yeah, or don't judge me. Oh, true. Don't judge. Judge is bad. Mm -hmm. Everything's equal. Nothing's really better than anything else. And they they live in this very relativistic social, cultural environment. But it's hard to develop wisdom when you can't judge. So, you know, if all art is equally valid, if all music is equally valid, if... You know, Fifty Shades of Grey is as great as Shakespeare, so it doesn't matter what you read. Well, of course, you're going to not develop that faculty Mm -hmm. of knowing what's good, what's true, what's beautiful. So that's where, you know, I've gravitated towards is that world where let's design our education to cultivate wisdom. And then virtue. What's virtue? Well, the ancient Greek definition really would be being the best of what you are. Mm. So a really excellent knife that was 
a superb knife, which we all love when we're mm. cooking, right? Could be a virtuous knife because mm. it is the best of what it is. So what are we? Well, kind of depends on your worldview in a way, but we're humans. I think we all agree on that. So what does it mean to be the best human you can be? Mm -hmm. And then you get into the whole idea of character. Right. And developing character. And, and so, you know, a lot of where I've discovered value is in the, the real books versus the textbooks, you know, the great books that get you in direct contact with a great mind. And those stories that illustrate, that, that build your moral imagination about what does it mean to have integrity? Mm -hmm. What does it mean to have humility? What does it mean to be long-suffering? What does it mean to be loyal? You may or may not have people in your daily life that exhibit, that illustrate those qualities. But if you read Dickens, if you read... Austin was who I was thinking. Austin. I'm also thinking Les Miserables, books like that, that, that are, are showing the amplification in the way of the type of character qualities mm -hmm. that we should want to right. become more fully human, mm -hmm. to you know, be the best version of ourselves, to seal the words of Matthew Kelly. And so the real books, the poetry, the literature, the arts, the music, the things that particularly not mentioned, almost to the degree that it's obvious that they are excluded from the standards, the mm. newest standards, right. whatever version of that happens to be floating around. And then, of course, the intangibles that Mrs. Ingham always talked about. Mm -hmm. And she would talk about, you know, how it was so important for the child to learn to wrap up his library book in the plastic bag, yes. carry it home very carefully so mm -hmm. that it didn't get wet or damaged, and remember to bring it back the next day. In the bag. In the bag, carefully wrapped up. Mm -hmm. A little detail, and yet a character-building element. Mm -hmm. And she had... She could talk about that for a couple hours, right. the intangible. She Preciousness of others and caring for their things. And I don't see that's easy to do in the modern world. Mm -hmm. And teachers who can build those things into their classroom are really doing a great service to the children, but it is an exceptional teacher mm -hmm. that can do that. At home, you have a little bit easier environment for doing that because you have fewer kids and less chaos, although sometimes you've got a lot of kids and a lot of chaos. But even at home, you know, you still have to do it consciously. That type of thing won't happen by accident mm -hmm. because environment leads to the proper ordering of desires and affections, right? Right. And then the affections, the desires and affections, or lead to a discipline, which is a self-discipline, mm. you know, because all discipline ultimately is self-discipline. I mean, you can take a four-year-old and say, do this or go into timeout, right. or if you do that again, you'll go into timeout, it appears as external. But ultimately, that four-year-old, I'm thinking of my grandson in particular, <laughs> has to decide to do his chores or not, or to not do what he shouldn't, or, or to do it. So all discipline, self-discipline, and then discipline, when it becomes a habit, can lead to mastery, and then mastery is that type of thing that helps you really be successful and make a difference. That's college and career readiness, mm -hmm. right? And so we, as teachers, we want to study and understand this and then, of course, try to practice that in our own lives to the degree we can and, and then mentor each other. I 
could go on in this vein a long time. I'm just know. thinking how valuable this is, and perhaps you should, but we also have to <laughs> well, have a few more and, lessons. And I do have that talk on uh, rebuilding mm. your education paradigm, mm-hmm. and I talk there about kind of the curriculum mm-hmm. rather than subject mm. as being areas of humanness, mm-hmm. character, knowledge, and skills, mm-hmm. as being the three quote, subjects of what I would view a a more ideal approach to curriculum. Because one of the things you have to do is keep it simple, Mm -hmm. right? And if you have so many subjects and so much complexity Mm -hmm. and so many kids, you know, who are all different with so many subjects and so much complexity, pretty soon it's easy to be overwhelmed by complexity and then you get exhausted. So one of the things I, I think we can coach teachers to some degree and you know, also moms who are, are entering into the world of, you know, how do you actually do this mm-hmm. home education thing? Simple, not complex. That's one of Oliver DeMille's seven keys of great teaching from the leadership education model is simple, not complex. So think about what are you doing in the area of character? What are you doing to grow knowledge? And you'll never know everything about everything anyway, so you can kind of relax on that. Depth is is probably better than than being spread out, right. and then skills, and then those skills divide into, of course, language skills. That's where we focus, mm-hmm. listen, speak, read, write, think, mm-hmm. and then math skills, mm. and then the corpus callosum between the, the two hemispheres of the skills cortex, so to speak, would be logic, Oh, okay. that area that connects, if you will, langu- linguistic thinking and mathematical thinking. So we can refer people to that talk freedomship education, rebuilding Mm -hmm. your education paradigm, and go into this in a lot more depth. Yeah, great. Okay, is that, that was number five? That was number five. Ah, okay, number six. Number six, okay. Number six is a little challenging sometimes to people, Mm -hmm. but again, it's a lesson I learned, took Mm -hmm. me a long time. Teaching is really about you, the teacher, not them. And it's so easy to always be thinking about, I'm doing this for them, everything is for them, This school operates because of students and forget about yourself. There's an unpublished book, which I actually have a copy of. Mm. I'm not sure I'm actually legally supposed to even have it. It will probably (laughs) never be published. (laughs) But it's by one of my favorite authors, John Senior. And and the title of the book is The Idea of a School. Mm. This is an allusion to John Henry Newman's book, the idea of a university. But in the beginning of that book, John Sr. says, first and foremost, a school should be a faculty of friends. Mm. A faculty of friends. The faculty comes first. The discussion begins. And through the principle of attraction, students appear. I mean, that's a high and lofty impractical ideal, but it's always good to think about that because too often we do it in reverse. Oh no, we have kids, we gotta teach them, we gotta find people to teach them. And sometimes the teachers don't have a whole lot of opportunity to really build that intellectual friendship mm-hmm. and that that core of the school. And even if you haven't, it's hard to maintain that Teachers leave, teachers come, teachers go, everybody's busy doing their own thing. Moms at home can feel rather isolated. Hybrid school teachers are going all directions. And so the first sub point of it's really about you 
would be have your support system, have your community, have your faculty of friends, mm -hmm. and then it overflows to the students. Mm -hmm. Because if you can't overflow, then how do you overflow to your students? Exactly. You have to be full yourself. Right. And I think all of us who've had teaching experiences realize how easy it is to kind of be drained out and you, you feel drained out. So you just can't keep giving and giving and giving. You've got to fill yourself up. So if I had time, I would talk about how wonderful my experience was, was having lunch with my fellow teachers and how much that was helpful. And even though I had to sacrifice grading papers, I I'd take that time, or I could talk to the homeschool mom and say, get ye to a homeschool convention yes. so you can sharpen the saw, which is also a business principle of you, not them, mm -hmm. because of overflowing to them. So yeah. important. And I've even gone so far as to say, if you need to, sometimes just turn the tables. This would be harder in a classroom, but mm -hmm. at home, you know, just ignore the children. And read a, read a book. It would be really hard in the classroom. Get a classic book. I mean, you could try it. I could imagine it. Mm -hmm. Just sit there and read a book. Mm -hmm. And, you know, be marking in it. And mm -hmm. all the kids would be like, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. The kids at home, Mom, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm studying. Leave me alone. Well, what are you reading? Ah, you wouldn't be interested. Mm -hmm. Well, what are we supposed to do? I don't care. <laughs> Aren't we supposed to, like, do school or something? Yeah, you can if you want to, but I'm busy studying. <laughs> well, what are you studying? Uh, you really wouldn't be interested. Well, what are you? Okay, if you'll be very calm and quiet, I'll read this to you. And just kind of turn the tables. Mm -hmm. And that idea of you first, mm -hmm. it's not selfish. In a way, it's selfless because the reason for it is so you can overflow. Yes. And you're also modeling. Yes. I think that we can look at teachers that we know and say, one of the things that made them a great teacher is that they really were always learning. Mm -hmm. They were studying. They had something new and mm -hmm. exciting mm -hmm. to share. Yep. And you really can't rest on your laurels it's right. in teaching. It's you right. really have to be always continuing mm -hmm. that process. And one of the things we know from our teaching, writing, instruction, and style, teacher training, parent training course is that the people who are the most successful are the ones who actually do all the practicum assignments. Yes, that's true. That you is know, true. I, uh, just a few days ago, I was out at a conference, and someone said, you know, I bought this a few years ago, and I've just never been able to, you know, do it. I said, well, did you do the practicum exercises? You know, when it says, turn off the video, make the outline. Turn off the video, write the paragraph. Turn off the video, do this. Did you do that? She goes, no, no. I said, well, how are you going to teach something you don't know well enough? Right. Right? You have to wrestle with it. And if you wrestle with it, then you gain empathy, you gain patience, and you can be a better guide. Mm -hmm. Right? And, and this is true in everything. Sure. And, you know, I discovered in the Latin, <laughs> I had to fill myself up with Latin as best I could and squeeze time out of my life to do that in order to have any anything to give and right. and there's been times when I've shown up ill-prepared and I know it and they know it and we struggle through and they still love me for the most part mm -hmm. so with the writing you know I'm always encouraging you know teachers parents tutors anyone not every time but often enough do 
the assignment that you're giving your students. Right. If you do the assignment you just gave them, you will be better off. They will be better off. Your interactions as a result of this will be better, and you'll be a better teacher for it. And I know you're busy. We're all busy. Everybody's busy. But is it a priority? Can you make yourself a priority? Because when you do, then your teaching goes so much better. So that was point number six. You, not them. We could have that as a standalone, but I think we have just enough time to get to point number seven. Point number seven. This one I discovered early on, but I've been practicing and refining it ever Mm. since. Okay. And I will never get it perfect. Okay. (laughs) But it's really simple. Love is the key Mm. to good teaching. Mm -hmm. I realized early on as a music teacher that if my music students really knew, if they, if they really experienced that I am grateful for them, that I'm happy that they're there, that I'm excited about what they're learning and doing, if they could really feel loved, everything went better. Mm-hmm. But when you're a 30-year-old violin teacher and you have a 13-year-old girl coming in for a violin lesson, what you don't say is, hey, sweetheart, I am so glad you're here because I love you so much. Right. We're going to have a great lesson. No, you right. don't say stuff like that. So you develop other ways of communicating that love. And really, I discovered kind of two secret weapons, if you will. These are two sides of one coin. Uh, it's the same thing I talk about at the end of the Teaching Boys and Motivation Talk. Mm-hmm. And that is how to communicate love in a real, meaningful, effective way. So two ways to do that, two sides of one coin. The first one I learned from really my teacher, Dr. Suzuki, and his his great book, his first book he ever wrote, and a book I wish every parent could read, is called Nurtured by Love. Mm. He was very, very aware of the power of love in teaching, and I think I experienced being loved by him. I experienced that watching him interact with children. It was just phenomenal. His belief in other people, his faith in people Hmm. was just a profound testament. And, and And that stems from that love, really. But he would talk about this idea. You've probably heard it, the emotional bank account. Yes. Some people, the emotional gas tank. Mm -hmm. I like the bank account better because the gas tank kind of implies that you fill it up so you can drain it out. Whereas Suzuki said, no, a bank account, you live off the interest, right? You fill it up with enough positive, with enough affirmation, so that when you have to make a correction, you can do that, but you're not withdrawing your principal. You live off the interest. He was a very economically Mm. minded man Mm -hmm. and made a lot of allusions and similes with economic principles in teaching music. But that idea that one of the problems of teaching violin, as soon as a student picks up a violin, they are doing everything wrong. Sure. So it's all about correction. It's a continuous process of correction. And I don't know about you, but I don't really like the feeling of being corrected. I mean, Mm -hmm. we need it. We Mm -hmm. know that. But it is a bit of a drain. So we need that affirmation, right? Mm-hmm. This is true in business as well. You know, when we manage people, we have to always be sure that they're feeling appreciated before we 
tell them what needs improvement, yeah. right? Yes. I was there in the Carter years, and the you actually could live off interest in those hmm. years. It was like 12% or right? something. So I came back from Japan thinking, okay, 10 to 1 ratio. If I could say 10 positive things, then I could make corrections, and my students would would they be full? Mm-hmm. I can maybe live off that interest for a while. Mm-hmm. And I would actually count on my fingers. I was very intentional. I would say 10 positive things before making that first, here's how you need to do this differently. That's incredible. Suzuki was so good at this. In so fact, he modeled it well I, for you. We had one lesson. This young adult came in. I don't remember where from. A foreigner came in and played for a first lesson for Suzuki, and it was just so bad. I mean, out of tune, the rhythm was horrible, just as bad as it could get, and you're thinking, and this person wants to be a violin teacher, and we're all kind of sitting there thinking, what is he going to do? Right. Right. And so the first words out of his mouth are, good, you can play. Okay. (laughs) And then he took the violin away and said, hold the bow like this and do this 10,000 times. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm. And so one of the, the senior Japanese students, Yuriko, she asked him and said, uh, Sensei, why did you say you can play good? It wasn't good. And he answered her, and he said in Japanese, I said, and then he said in English, I don't say you play good. I say good. You can play. <laughs> right. He found the most rudimentary thing, which is you can make noise on this thing. That's that's something. Yes. But, you know, kids would come in. I'd say, hey, thanks for being on time. It's so great when kids can get their parents to a lesson on time. I know how hard it is for my kids to get their mom places on time. You know, Hey, that's a cute blouse you got on. I don't know if it's a blouse. Mm-hmm. I've never figured out. Not the difference between a blouse and a shirt? Yeah. Yes. I don't know <laughs> if it's cute. I don't even know what color it is, honestly. But what I do know is... She probably spent 20 minutes trying to figure out what to wear mm-hmm. or, or thought about it the night before and lost sleep over what to wear, you know, because I've had 13-year-old girls yes. at home. <laughs> You've never had a 13-year-old girl at home. Nope. We should find one for you. I have daughters-in-law. Finding positive things, that's one part, and building up that that bank account. The other thing I discovered is it's just very simple. It's the power of the smile. Mm. You know, if you smile at someone long enough mm-hmm. and hard enough <laughs> they'll smile back it's true because they can't not because if they don't smile back they pretty soon realize how hard they're trying <laughs> not to smile back <laughs> and then they crack up realizing yes. <laughs> it's a contagious thing and what does a smile communicate i'm happy to be here with you mm-hmm. i appreciate you we're good together mm-hmm. and i used to this is kind of awkward to say in my early years I used to practice smiling in a mirror, (laughs) and I would try all various different smiles in a mirror, and then I would go test out these smiles (laughs) on students to figure out which smiling technique had the best effect. The secret life of Andrew Poole. Yeah, I don't do that anymore. No. (laughs) But I do know that it is is easy to forget, Mm -hmm. to express appreciation and love Mm -hmm. because we get busy and it's like, yeah, Mm -hmm. we love each other. We know that. So would you get to work? Because we got stuff to do here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that we have to always kind of take stock and say, okay, are all the variables in place here so that this student really knows or this group of students really know I love them? Mm -hmm. So that is the last 
of the seven things I learned over 30 years of teaching. 30 years of teaching. And I'm just thinking a lot of what you just shared, of course, applies to business, how you actually led this company, infusing your staff, us, with those same qualities that we want to aspire to, too, and, and you lead us well. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, you can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes or Stitcher, or just visit us each week at IEW.com podcast. Until then, on behalf of Andrew Poudois and the team at IEW, I thank you for the privilege of allowing us to partner with you on this educational journey toward better listening, speaking, reading, writing, and thinking.